this is not normal remote work. I, I would I would remind people like I'm, this is not normal. I'm not used to this. I'm actually used to a global pandemic and trying to be productive. But at the same time, I was also really afraid that people were going to um, associate this with what this is what remote work is like, right? Like remote work is you can't leave the house and you you can't, you know, I was so afraid. I was like, people are going to say remote work is the worst thing in the world because their only experience of it is like during this global pandemic. Welcome to the Modern Work Podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Conaway, and I'm excited to share my interview with Martin Smith. We recorded the first part while together in Vietnam in January 2017 on Remote Year, and then we did a follow-up interview over Zoom in March 2021. These were really fascinating conversations for me, and while this might be particularly helpful to a college student or someone working in tech or interested in computers, I think it's equally interesting and relevant for non-technical people like me to listen and learn more. And we also share a lot of insights for anyone interested in remote work and how that works. So in our 2017 interview, we cover Martin's education and work experience, starting with writing AP answer keys while he was in middle school through his college years studying computer science. He then worked for the University of Florida, which led to some interesting conversations about state demographics data and database management, as well as the way that tech supports our universities and educational experiences. Again, even more interesting to hear now with the context of so much more online learning happening. Then he moved on to work at Rackspace and helps explain more about that job to a non-tech audience, AKA me and maybe you, as well as talk about his experience working remotely. Again, that was in 2017 and he'd already had several years of remote work experience, um, but we talk about that over both interviews. Obviously a lot about the world has changed in the past four years. So we did a follow-up in 2021 and we discussed his professional experiences and changes since 2017, but we also talk a bit about the 2020 pandemic and the impact on remote work. And you'll hear all of that towards the end of this episode. Thank you for listening and please enjoy. My name is Martin Smith and I'm traveling on the second remote year group and I'm a principal engineer at a cloud computing company called Rackspace. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So Martin and I are, as he mentioned, both in the second group of Remote Year, and we are recording this in a little podcast recording booth in our workspace in Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon, Vietnam. And it is the last 12 days of our Remote Year together. It's true. It's almost over. It seems really fast and really slow. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about your personal backstory, like where you grew up, went to school, a couple of things like that. Okay, Uh, that sounds great. I grew up in South Florida and uh, eventually went to school for computer science at the University of Florida. And um, is that the one in Miami or Tallahassee? It's actually in Gainesville, Florida. It's a small college town. Strikeout. (laughs) That's a common, common, common confusion with with folks that don't know Florida. So there's there's a couple big schools and that's one of them. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I got a computer science degree from there. And uh, after that, stayed in town for a little bit and worked uh, at the university doing um, some work in IT there, and then eventually moved on to work at Rackspace. Cool. How did you know 
going into college that you were interested in that? Uh, I would say that I knew I wanted to work in computers, but I didn't know exactly what that meant. Um, I had why, some, why computers? Uh, it was just something that I was very much drawn to as a young kid. I learned my ABCs on an Apple II. Um, I, Apple II is like the little box with the black and white screen. The, uh, green even, black and green. Oh, yeah, very I had original. the black and white or grayscale Apple back in the day, but... I was lucky that my father was uh, a businessman and had a lot of computers early on when personal computers were still sort of still catching on, and so um, they caught on with me early, too. So so he had them at home, and you got to kind of play He with had that? them at home, yes. Um, you know, things like spreadsheets. Spreadsheets were a huge innovation for people that were doing a lot of calculations by hand, and I remember growing up as a little kid, like, actually seeing those in the house, um, and that was unusual in the early 80s. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So from there, um, just had continued interest. I had a couple side jobs in middle school. I worked at a textbook company that did computer science textbooks. I, you worked um, in middle school at a textbook company? I did over the summer. I wrote answer keys for an AP computer science Is textbook. Uh, yeah, it was a you know regular <laughs> paycheck. The IRS took money out of it, so it's, I'm pretty sure it counted. <laughs> it's so funny. I think, I mean, we can't even get into like childhood and what's appropriate and like what's going on with teenagers these days. But I feel like our generation, which is people who are currently over 30, have a lot more, not necessarily the people that are young now aren't getting any work experience. But I feel like when I talk to people who are over 30, we're like, oh, well, I worked as a waitress or I was employed by this company or I did this thing at like 14 that like looking back on it, you're like, I can't believe at 14 I was doing accounting, but like <laughs> I was. And it's, it's a very funny set of expectations of what we think people are or aren't capable of at different ages. For sure. I mean, I think I'm specifically got sort of a work ethic instilled in me by my parents who are both very um, driven and have a strong work ethic. So I think like some of that was just the family situation. But yeah, in general, I mean, that wasn't that was the only computer related job I had. But I did. Ha I did do some others, you know, so yeah, for sure. So, so by the end of high school, going into college, you had experience on computers, but were you like taking them apart and programming or doing anything like really creative? Yeah, I mean, um, by the time I was, uh, so my high school wouldn't let me as a middle schooler, the local high school wouldn't let me take AP computer science until I was at least a freshman in high school. How, um, how rude of them. Right. So even though I had written answer keys for computer science textbooks for that <laughs> class. So, um, yeah. So by the time high school rolled around, I was already doing a lot of programming. Um, and then later on, when I was a senior in high school, I also worked sort of in the dot com bubble at a at a startup company in town in South Florida that um, did all kinds of web hosting and sort of early dot com type. Uh, business activities like that, and also built um, built computers, bought, bought components, sold them, set them up, things like that. So I started to already even before going to school for computer science, doing a lot of that kind of stuff. But um, I still wouldn't say at that point I knew exactly the path I'm on now. Um, oh sure, yeah, I think I think that, that's a very common trend. Like everyone I talk to, whether it's for the podcast or in life, so much of the jobs we have today aren't things that existed before or you would have no way of really knowing about them like they're not things you've heard of 
unless you are in a situation to hear of them. Yeah, I think that probably the most interesting things I've done and learned have been things that were needed by the place I was working, needed for the business, but not necessarily things that um, I would have gone and sought out. Right. So when you said that you were programming stuff in high school, what are we talking about in terms of like a language or... Um, so at that point, it was I was doing a lot of C++. So um, I was also, that was kind of like the era, especially when I was in middle school, where um, the web was starting to become a thing, like starting to take off. The first web browsers um, were around. I was really lucky that I had um, a teacher in middle school that had been ex-NASA um, and had sort of known about the tip of that spear as that sort of technology industry was growing up. So I guess that's a benefit of Florida. I guess so. I mean, yeah, for sure. Florida, NASA has a big presence in Florida. I don't actually think she, I think she came from somewhere else, but I, yeah, there's a lot of that there um, for sure. So female teacher yes. with computers. Very cool, very Love cool um, background. So yeah, taught me all kinds of things that I wanted to go that learn about and I took an interest in. So very cool. Yeah. Okay. And so you have this experience with C++, you've worked a bit, you're doing answer keys and you decided to go to the University of Florida That's and right. study, did you say computer science? Computer science, yeah. What I is computer science versus computer engineering or some other majors that are on the table there? So I actually started in computer engineering and computer engineering and computer science, at least at the University of Florida, are not wildly different. Um, one is more, I would say computer science is sort of more pure science focused. So. Um, theories, research, uh, it's less applied, whereas computer engineering was more um, great. We know the science behind this. How do we build one? Um, so uh, actually, things like chemistry were less interesting to me than some of the theoretical stuff around computer science and researching algorithms and things like that. So I actually switched from computer engineering to computer science. Um, and that helped, too, because I had a lot of other sort of smaller interests that... Um, I was able to do electives in if I wasn't doing engineering. Like what? Um, so very interested in linguistics. Uh, I was able to take a lot of linguistics classes because the uh, more the pure sciences end up in sort of the liberal arts box. And so you suddenly are able, it opens up your electives in a lot of ways that for engineering, you have so many uh, requirements to meet that it's difficult to really kind of dabble anywhere else. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the liberal arts thing because I do think they complement each other really well. And even if it seems unrelated, it actually rounds out what you're learning really nicely. And I'm sure. I'm sure for you, like linguistics might sound like a side interest, but at the end of the day, understanding how humans communicate probably ties back into what we do on the computer and what we need it for and how it should work with us as humans. For sure. And also uh, computer science and linguistics, I mean, natural language processing and a lot of what interests now exists around uh, computing uh, are around linguistics as well. So they actually, they're a field now together as well. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to talk to Siri, like she's got to understand me talking. Exactly. Like, very cool. So when you were in school, did you do any internships or jobs that like directed your path after college? No, actually, it's one thing that that's one of those pieces of if I could go back and give myself advice, I would have done more of. Um, I didn't really. I sort of tried to focus on school um, and knock it all out, get it done in a four year time period. Um, I had some sort of side jobs at coffee places and things uh, some summers. Other summers, I ended up just trying to 
do more coursework to get done. So um, not as much as I wish I had done now. <laughs> so then what did you do after you graduated? Um, so in my personal life, I had met somebody in town and wanted to kind of stick around. So I started looking for jobs sort of in uh, the North Florida area. Uh, and after a few months, um, just about at the point where I thought I might have to look uh, broader in, in the rest of Florida and, and the rest of the states, um, found a really great job at the university working for um, a group in the College of Business that um, is the state of Florida's demographer um, and statistician office. And they like publish statistical abstracts for the state of Florida with all kinds of interesting data. So um, I started working there as a database administrator. Okay. What does that mean? Uh, for me, it meant that I had a lot of data um, that people sent me from all kinds of interesting sources from everything from uh, population estimates to Department of Revenue sales tax numbers to um, flow rates of municipal water supplies. And, um, you know, we have the census every 10 years, but the state of Florida likes to make population estimates every year so that they can figure out funding. Um, so very contentious, uh, interesting topic with lots of ways to figure out how many people there are from public schools to to wastewater. So it was a very interesting place where <laughs> <laughs> where data would come in. I would look at it, try to get it in a format that they could use across a few years. And then um, people much smarter than me were making all kinds of elaborate models and estimates for everything from uh, population to sometimes even very topical issues like consumer confidence or um, a particular piece of legislation that the state of Florida was thinking about enacting. That's so interesting. So you're receiving this data in a number of forms like Excel and other... All kinds of formats. All kinds of yeah. formats. And then you are creating a custom database for that or they had something that you're just... Um, using? I would write a lot of code, actually, to read a lot of interesting data formats and then get them into one and then also do a lot of optimization around, um, you know, you'd have hundreds of gigabytes, terabytes of um, like a really interesting one was property tax appraiser data um, for the entire state of Florida for every piece of property they appraise. And, wow. um, you know, that was another way they estimated population, for instance. And uh, so, yeah, I would have to go through it. I'd have to um, help people craft queries that would actually give them results in a meaningful time frame that wouldn't take months to, to calculate. So uh, writing code to do basically everything around the data from ingesting it to manipulating it to cleaning it up to f asking it questions. And so this is in the, what, like 2007? It was like 2000, yeah, 2005, 2000, roughly 2005. So I did that for um, almost two years. Okay. And so um, was that a pretty self-taught experience or did you learn how to do that in school? Um, you know, I took some classes on database administration, but uh, a lot of the stuff that um, I was learning in school was sort of... Um, theoretical or foundational information. And then the stuff I was dealing with in this first job was much more um, applied and old formats. You know, I mean, I literally walked into this office, which had been around since the 20s. Um, and there were, you know, cartridge tapes. And I mean, they had been doing statistical data for Florida for a long, long time. So I was definitely looking at um, some stuff that was older than the than sort of where we were in that moment in technology, for sure. <laughs> Cool. Um, so a lot of learning on my own. Also a lot of, um, you know, 
one thing that people don't think about with data is that as new software comes out, as software uh, stops being maintained, there's a lot of data you're constantly having to move into the newest format yeah. because otherwise you kind of lose access to it if the software stops working, if if they don't release any more versions of an old version of Windows and that's where the software runs, for instance, that you can't open that file anymore. So a lot of it is just ongoing maintenance of stuff like that too. I uh, saw a funny article and I'm not even that good with tech and data formats, but about uh, Star Wars and how they use really preposterous, like different formats of mm-hmm. data saving and access. And they're like, this is the most ridiculous. Like, why are they using all these dumb drives and handing things off so <laughs> manually? Like, this it's is really not how true. it would be done. <laughs> you know, that's a big fear. I know that, uh, like, I've, I've known people that have worked at sort of library archival places for electronic data. And it Turns out, ironically, it might actually be easier to lose electronic data than physical books because it's you'd think that you'd think that books fall apart, but actually sometimes um, the data falls apart faster in terms of the soft the software industry is moving so quickly that printing something out might actually make it last longer. Yeah, well, and we have hundreds of years more experience preserving books than we do preserving data. It's true. I mean, we don't even really, as we build new uh, like physical technology, like flash drives, we actually only expect them to be read and read. You know, sometimes it's 200,000 times. And after that, sometimes the zeros come back as ones. And, and so you really uh, bit rot is what they call that. And it's a real thing. That's kind of terrifying. Yeah. What would I do if all of my everything was just switched its ones and zeros. (laughs) Well, probably not a whole lot. Um, But luckily, I think in the case of flash drives, they actually ship them with more space than advertised so that as those pieces of physical electronic component die, there are new ones. There's extra, there's spares in there for you to use. And it would automatically just shift. Uh, Ideally. Oh. It really is like magic to me. I know that there's a science behind it and a physical component to everything we do with computers, but... Even as a pretty smart person who understands the high level of how things work, I think about sometimes if I was sent back into time, like 200 years with my iPhone, and I had to show it to somebody, I'd be like, here's a magical device. (laughs) I have no idea how it works. I can FaceTime my mom. You don't know what that means. I can see my mom's face and hear her voice from across the world instantly for free, I don't understand. It's like, true. It's, it's actually magic. And it's difficult even to now explain to, like, I have young nephews, and it's difficult to kind of, as the tech field broadens, too, um, I may know a lot about a particular tech field, and then there are whole other ones that I don't know anything about, and I work, you know, ostensibly in that industry. So it's it's only broadening and deepening, too. Yeah. And it's weird to think how integrated it is into our lives, where I mean, you and I grew up without a lot of this technology, and our parents certainly did. And it's sometimes hard for me to think about my life today as a 30-year-old person and how much I use technology to do everything I do. And I think about my parents at 30 didn't have like 95% of it, and yet they still were able to travel and work and have a social life. And they had this completely robust robust life. Like everyone else in human history for 2,000, 3,000, 6,000 years – Without any of it. Right. Well, and to me, it's really interesting how it's still really unevenly distributed, right? There are still people alive today that are in that same space that our parents were 30 years ago today. So it's really unevenly distributed, too. Right. Though I think increasingly it seems like what half the world population now has a phone, if not like a computer. But you, I mean, 
a phone of any kind is like pretty remarkable in terms of how mm-hmm. it changes the human experience. For sure. I mean, it's actually really fun to travel um, with remote ear and see some of these places where uh, people don't have computers, but they have they can send text messages and they do everything that way. Like it's really interesting to see some of these places, how connected or not connected they are and and how people even use technology there, because I think we're going to see um, that maybe things even we don't think about today that where cell towers are everywhere, but there's not laptops and people are going to do even more with things that we didn't think of. Yeah, definitely interesting to see how technology gets, you know, like people will, if you give somebody a tool, they'll use it in different ways depending on their needs. And so if you have it only in one environment, it might only get used one way. But once it spreads, you turn around, you're like, oh, my gosh, like it never would have occurred to me to Mm -hmm. apply it that way. But it's an interesting segue. Um, After I worked at that place at the University of Florida, I moved a transition to their central IT organization, worked there. And one of the big projects I worked on was um, the infrastructure behind their online learning environment. And uh, I would go to conferences about online learning. And um, there were some really cool examples of that, like people doing their online learning through text messages because there weren't um, there was no DSL. There weren't there wasn't cable, you know, like the university, uh, a university in South Africa where people were taking their online quizzes with their SMS because that was the that was the way that they oh, got so it, internet like, text access. you a question and you text back your answer. That's right. Like so it's really unevenly distributed, but it was it was cool in that in that next job I was in to see some of that even more real time. Wow. I'm very interested in online learning. I think part of that's because I used to be a teacher and I love education, but I also just think it's, you know, depending whether or not that's online learning in the form of like a university program or just the ways in which we're able to learn new things thanks to the internet. And that can be an online course or reading materials or video series, like whatever that is, like we're increasingly finding ways to learn online. It's true. And also figuring out which ways work and which ways don't. I mean, I lately I've been, as we've traveled, been really interested in trying to learn some of the local languages. And um, I've been reading some scholarly articles about the effectiveness of online learning for some languages versus others and classroom learning with online learning, classroom learning without and vice versa. And that's, yeah, it's really interesting to see kind of what we can get online and what still kind of requires a, a classroom for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. When you so when you were at that next job in IT, mm-hmm. it was a, centered around the online learning or that was just one aspect. That was of- one thing I was responsible for um after after working at that uh, it was called the Bureau of Economic and Business Research, which is where all that statistics stuff was. But after that I moved um into central uh IT in the University of Florida um in a group that did a lot of um systems administration and Linux and things like that. And uh, one of the main things I was responsible for when I started was their online learning system. What does that mean? Um, That means that things, again, there was some database work, like making sure there was enough space, that it wasn't slow, that um, as students were using the system or faculty or staff or whoever, that they could upload files and that that would work. Um, And then also uh, just a bunch of other sort of, use air quotes infrastructure, but um, making sure that servers were running, that they were responding to requests, that um, doing maintenance on a Sunday morning to add more hard drives to the system, basically. Um, so there's a mixture of like physical things you are walking around and doing and things you're doing from some kind of computer. Program. That's right. I mean, um, I, I 
use it also hard drives and air quotes because some of that was also sort of virtual. It was space that existed elsewhere, and I'm mapping it in, you know, at software settings. But um, sometimes it was physical too, uh, especially networking, especially um, that uh, that job had me regularly walking into a couple of data centers from time to time, um, doing physical things like replacing components that were broken that, um, you know, I would have to diagnose and do all of the other software things, but also sometimes physically go pull something out of a rack and put something else back in. Mm. I think it's funny because so many of us just like the IT department or the IT guy, we're just like, I don't know. And 99% of what we're using you for consciously is like restarting the computer when it's frozen or something. Right. But there's actually this really complex world of, like you said, Everything we do that we think is some automatic thing is probably way more things that you're setting up and monitoring and, like, adapting on a regular basis. For sure. I think, like, as we've gotten into this sort of cloud computing world, it's kind of um, become a utility model. Like, you know that when you plug something into the outlet in your house or you turn on the faucet, like, the water comes out. But actually, there's a lot more to that, that... um, Computing is starting to sort of get like that in a couple places. So, yeah, I agree. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. Yeah. The IT guys are actually valuable, know a lot, doing a lot, mm-hmm. as it turns out. For sure. There, Yeah, definitely. There's not a dull moment. <laughs> okay. So you did that job for a few years? Um, or? I was at the university for a total of eight. So I was there for... Um, about five, I think. And doing uh, kind of a consistent thing? It changed or? over time. Um, we grew a lot, um, and I kind of became like a technical lead of the team that that we were uh, that I was part of when I started. Um, and there ended up being, at any given time, between like five and eight of us. And so uh, some of that responsibility became administrative, doing, uh, making sure projects were getting done, helping new team members start up and get onboarded, and... Um, you know, making sure that things were on time and sort of a little more project management type stuff, but um, certainly not in the sense that people that actually do project management would say. (laughs) Um, But yeah, kind of doing a little more of an administrative role from time to time. Um, And then picking up some other big projects like um, running the email system or uh, big things. The University of Florida is like the was one of the largest in the country at the time. I think now a few have grown bigger, but um, the largest in the state. So a lot of so like, they have like what forty thousand. Uh, at the time, it was over fifty. Um, I think probably now they're still in the top ten for public universities as far as size. But um, I think like there's been a few that have grown a lot as well. So, but um, it's a heavy load. Yeah, and and I was running systems that had you know twenty thousand people using them at any given time. So. Um, it got interesting in that way, and I worked on a lot of systems that had a lot of users, so cut cut my teeth sort of on a lot more um, as time went on. Is it very different now that you have, I mean, I know your current job is probably fairly different than that, but working in a university versus working in a company, or does that department end up feeling very much like working for a company? Uh, there are parts of it that do, and there are parts of it that don't. Um, working in a central part of a university, often your customers are your clients are like individual departments, you know, they're mathematics or biology or physics or some other part of the university. But um, there's, I think there's like maybe different core values in those organizations. So um, while you still have customers at a university, like uh, the mission is different, right? So 
Um, it's one thing, I think it's, it's similar to how uh, people that work at a software company would say that they're building the product. Um, at a university, you're not building the product, you're building the thing that helps people build the product. So the, the education is the product, the research is the product, um, and you are just helping in that mission where I think as at a private company, you're more often um, either, well, depends on the role, but for me, uh, the role has been at a private company much more focused on um, directly getting the thing that we're selling done versus mm. uh, supporting it. Right. That makes sense. That's yeah. really interesting. So you were there and doing all of these various administrative and technical roles. And then did you decide that you wanted to work for a private company or did you find out about this opportunity or how did you transition? Um, actually, some totally non-career stuff happened. Uh, I had some family move closer. Um, some other stuff just in, in my life had happened. And um, so uh, with that in mind, I thought, well, gosh, I'm going to be um, in North Florida for a while, it seems like. It doesn't seem like I'm going anywhere anytime soon. So um, I thought I want to grow and continue and uh, l learn more. And uh, that combined with just wanting to make sure that I was happy where I was um, and that I didn't find opportunities for growth locally, uh, I ended up finding a remote job uh, where there was some some growing I could do into. Uh, and, what year was that? Uh, so I think that was 2012, 11, 2012, okay. something like that. Yeah. I guess that sounds, so at that time. 2012. And that's with Rackspace. That's right. And that remote work is that common or was Rackspace unusual? Is that a fully remote company? Uh, no, it's not. They're, they definitely have mostly offices and most of their folks are there. Um, I think some numbers recently I saw uh, that were uh, put us around maybe 10 to 15 percent at any given time remote. Um, How many employees? Uh, I think the, with that number, it was around 6,000 employees. So total. Total. Okay. So 10 to 15% remote. I mean, it varies like day to day, right? Sure. Um, but yeah, a, a not insignificant chunk. Okay. So you found this job at Rackspace. What was that? Um, they actually found me. I was thinking I didn't have remote in mind, actually. Um, and I kind of said, no, no, I, I really am not going to relocate. And uh, they said, keep talking to us. Uh, you know, we're still interested. And so I said, all right, well, what could this be? And um, sort of found out what it could be when uh, it seemed like a pretty good opportunity. So I uh, did that. And uh, what did they find you for? Uh, I think so. I had been applying to just some jobs locally. And uh, I think one of the recruiters contacted me either because I, you know, you're updating LinkedIn or maybe I had uh, sent some resumes out and, and one came across them. So uh, one of the recruiters said, hey, I see you're looking around. Let's talk. And and oh. I said no, and then they said no. We do remote, <laughs> so. <laughs> and what what were they? What were either? What kind of position were you looking for? Or what were they looking to put you in? Um, so what's interesting is Rackspace is a big enough place that uh, there actually is a group doing recruiting of employees that has multiple spots they could slot someone into, right? So. Um, Interviewing with them actually involves sitting down with a couple different departments, people, and talking about potential roles. Um, so I was looking uh, for the same thing I was kind of doing at the university, but maybe less of that administrative work. 
Um, and then also opportunities to learn more. So um, at the same time in the tech community, there's been this sort of movement uh, to break down the difference between these sort of sysadmins and people that do a lot of programming. And I had backgrounds in both and that really appealed to me. Um, and so I ended up being a good fit for a position at Rackspace that had a little bit of both of those. So um, the sort of buzzword for it was DevOps. So it's a combi- combination of development and operations. So it's that's what that means. That's what that means. It's uh, you get to write code to do operations uh, instead of sort of more classic uh, systems administration stuff. Okay, so you started there in this remote role. Does that mean you were managing team members or you were just doing? No, actually, what was great is that it was technical. It was um, doing automation for Rackspace customers. Rackspace is primarily a service company. um, And so I got to work on a lot of actually really cool customers writing code for them to manage their infrastructure, to grow it, to shrink it, to cost optimize it, to... Uh, make it resilient to failures, all kinds of interesting programming tasks around infrastructure instead of applications. Very cool. Yeah. So so what is Rackspace? What, do, what does the company do? Um, so they're a cloud computing company. They do have a public cloud, but they're focused on um, providing services to others and being um, experts in a particular set of fields. And so... Um, these days, uh, we've actually got uh, customers that we manage their infrastructure on um, Amazon's cloud, um, our own, on a few others, also building private clouds, like so going into someone's data center and trying to build that that utility model, that thing where you turn on the faucet and computing resources come out, like that, uh, helping people build that so that they can focus on their business tasks while we make sure that the plumbing underneath works. Okay. So um, a a few different parts of the industry, but um, all around helping customers achieve sort of the things they need to achieve with our expertise is, you know, kind of being an extension of their team sometimes. Okay. And for me as a normal human and not a company, (laughs) like what's the parallel service or something that I would be using or way that I might like? Um. Some way to to conceptualize this. So Rackspace is one of the one of the biggest cloud computing companies out there, but we're I think we're one of the only ones that doesn't also have like a a product in everyone's home. So there's like you know you know Amazon because you buy things on Amazon, but actually like to build all that stuff that made it so you could buy things on Amazon, they had to build all of this infrastructure. And they actually sell it to other people. And so now you have someone like Netflix coming along and saying, we can use that too to build Netflix. Um, and so somebody could come to Rackspace and say, you know, we want to use what you built to build another product like that too. So um, maybe that's a good analogy. Um, you know, I'm, again, I'm on the technical side, so I'm yeah. not always the, <laughs> the side that explains the sort of one page glossy that yeah. well. But, um, a lot of things. It's a big company, but all of them revolve around um, providing a service to customers to help them achieve business outcomes one way or another, whether that's through um, automation or expertise or um, something that we have that we can kind of partner and be part of a customer's team to um, be the next thing. When when you call the local IT guy and he says, well, I don't know, have you turned it off and turned it on? Well, no, then then call Rackspace, right? And And They'll tell you, they'll look at the server and maybe tell you some more, get get you that next step, be an extension of your team. That's kind of their goal. Cool. 
Cool. What what size are the companies that are your clients typically? Um, all over, actually. We've got um, everything from Fortune 100 all the way to small business to really small companies. Actually, it's one of my favorite things about working there is watching a company get bigger that I've helped get there. It's really cool. So, What's um, like the smallest company you've worked with? Um, maybe in terms of staff, uh, maybe a Two people, three people. Okay, so yeah. definitely really small. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you see them open a New York office on LinkedIn, and you're like, that's so cool. So, yeah, I get to see people kind of go through that growth, and sometimes big companies, um, you know, the the logos on the Rackspace website for our, our clients are ever-changing, so um, I'm not... I'm not sure what the current ones on there are, but I, I can name lots of lots of over time. But I think check out check out Rackspace's website to kind of get a sense of that. Yeah, definitely. So how has your career looked in the five, four or five years you've been there? Um, so I started doing uh, some sort of systems administration stuff like I was doing at the University of Florida, which is great because um, it meant that I could learn the organizational culture of Rackspace um, while not simultaneously having to immediately uh, drink from the fire hose of, of all of the technical learning that I've probably done since then. Um, so doing a lot of Linux systems administration, uh, in some ways those people I used to work with at university departments were, were not dissimilar to the sort of customers that I was helping at Rackspace. Um, and then Rackspace uh, wanted to continue to grow a particular part of their business in doing automation for customers, which involves a lot of programming. And so um, I kind of jumped onto onto that and uh, have been doing some version of that ever since, uh, writing, writing code for customers to help uh, do things with their infrastructure. Very cool. Yeah. And you've had some exciting career things happen? Yeah. Um, so uh, I became a principal engineer for Rackspace not too long ago, which is uh, really cool, mostly because they're a company thinking about career track for technical people that may not... Um, in, a, in a lot of our industry, you become a manager at some point. That's kind of just what you do if you want to take another step upward. Um, and Rackspace has a cool program where um, they don't want you to necessarily be forced into that Uh and so they have sort of a parallel career track for technical people um, uh, that's called a, it's called technical career track, actually, is the <laughs> internal name for it. Very uh, direct. Yeah. And you can actually Google that, too. There's a lot of stuff out there on the Internet about it. But, um, yeah, I got uh, got to be part of that group. I got selected for that. So that was really cool. And that's um, what what does that mean for your position or your work now? Um, for me and the work that I do, I mean, some of it is keep doing what you're doing, right? It's it's recognition for things that I was already doing, but some of it is also um, having an opportunity to have a more direct role in the direction of the company, um, especially with my technical expertise. Um, a lot of companies, by the time you get people uh, up at that sort of level of the company, they're not technical. So I'm somebody that gets to kind of be technical at a higher level of the company um, and uh, also figure out ways to make it better, improve it. Um, the technical culture at Rackspace, figure out ways to make that better. Um, so in some ways, it's keep doing what you're doing. And in some ways, it's here's some more opportunities to kind of make Rackspace a better place and interact with the outside world um, technically on behalf of Rackspace. And when you're 
you mentioned I, this is part of that new role that there's like this group of people at Rackspace that are in this. I don't know if it's the principals or, or what that group is and mm-hmm. how many people is that? Uh, they try to keep it, I think, around like one or two percent of the total number of technical folks at the company. So it's like uh, any at any given time, 50, 60 people. OK. And that's just on the technical side. Right. And Those are, are you, all technical. Are people. you working with people in other departments? Um, I do have the opportunity to collaborate with that group from time to time, which is really cool because um, those are people kind of at the top of their game, at the top of their career, but like potentially in very different parts of Rackspace than me. So um, yeah, we actually uh, at least once a year deliberately get together and talk about those opportunities for like working across the business. Um, But a lot of them also just throughout the year happen organically, which is really cool. Um, you know, people with great ideas. And I think that one of the themes about working at Rackspace in general is that, like, I have ideas, I can help build things, other people are out there too, and coming together. Um, I've built stuff that I could never have built by myself. So, like, the collaboration that happens is um, really, really amazing, especially in that group, but even just in general, that that idea of disparate people from di- with different approaches coming together and doing some stuff that benefits the whole company, um, usually through doing something that benefits our customers. That's really cool. Yeah. What has the experience been like? Because you've been remote that entire time. That's right. Um, well, I found out when we were in La Paz. Uh, on remote year. On remote year in what? April. So um, it's one of those things that's kind of a slow burn change. So there's a transition and um, it gives me more opportunities to kind of uh, jump around and say, hey, I see this need. And I mean, I've always been someone that takes the initiative and says, I see this need, but it gives me a couple more ways I can kind of jump in and try to address the need, whatever that need might be. So um, it's been slow over time. I think most people in this group would say that that it's a slow transition, um, but it's been really cool, actually. And because Rackspace is sort of a global company, um, a lot of places that we've been, I've been able to interact with. Uh, jump around even more across sort of lines that normally I don't get a chance to because of um, time zones or physical location, you know, working with folks in London or Sydney, where now, like in Vietnam, I'm awake almost the same hours as, as the folks in our Sydney office. So so that combined with remote year and this sort of technical career track opportunity has given me all kinds of uh, ways I can kind of reach out and and pull things together across the company and do some cool projects. That's really neat. Work with some great people. How's your experience been doing remote work for the for the past five years and having your entire experience at Rackspace be remote? Um, it's been interesting. You know, I think that my experience at Rackspace is very different than other people's, which, uh, and I think that, like, even very different than other remote people. Uh, I think that one thing I've really noticed is there's lots of different types of remote. There's... Um, you're the one remote person on a team of people that sit right next to each other. There's the um, there's a team in London that I work with a lot, and we've got a one team remote from another team. Um, that has been an interesting experience with different challenges and problems. Um, and then being a team where within the team, half of you are remote um, has been a, yet another set of challenges. So I could probably talk about that all day. Um, which you don't want me to do. But, <laughs> but yeah, they've each had challenges. Um, the great thing about Rackspace is it's the kind of place where you can say, hey, I noticed this. My my spidey sense is tingling. There's We could do better here. And, and you can usually figure out a way to do it. 
And do you find that um, you've mentioned that there are different challenges with the remote work and remote teams and, and all the various ways things can be done remotely um, other than like your ability to work from them where you wanted to live in Florida and now in remote year. What have, what do you think the benefits have been of either having you or just remote be part of the way you work together? Um, one thing I think that remote work does really well, which, uh, you know, for an individual, maybe better or worse, but I get a lot done. I have a lot of time mm-hmm. um, that, you know, there, I definitely miss out on some, some of the office culture sometimes, but it, I mean, I can plow through six, seven hours worth of work, sometimes uninterrupted. So like, that's one way in which uh, the remote work can be very different from the office environment and in which it benefits me. Um, there are other ways in which I need to make sure to have social arrangements, meet meet up with people for lunch, things like that. Um, but there's really, I think, a lot of advantages to being remote. Um, I always say, though, that it's more of a, um, it's just a different set of challenges. I don't, I wouldn't characterize it, for me personally, as necessarily better or worse, just different. Um, but some examples this year have been things like uh, I was able to go to a conference in Oslo, um, and meet up with some folks and give a talk on remote work and DevOps. Um, and I was able to go to a conference in San Francisco at the beginning of the year when we were in Uruguay. And so um, I've been able to, because just because I happen to be around these other communities remotely, um, build them, collaborate with them, even in Florida, um, running some user groups kind of has given me all kinds of opportunities that uh, whereas Rackspace's offices are kind of saturated, right? They've got thousands of people, for instance, in San Antonio, and um, they're not going to affect a user group in Florida quite like I am. So being remote definitely has some advantages just in terms of um, getting out there and the saturation of, of uh, information and networking and all the things you can do with people you meet that, um, you know, I'm in a whole other location that I can do, which helps. Yeah. And I think I think there is a perception that the challenges of remote work is worse because they're new and different. Like we're used to the challenges that we have in an office. We're familiar with Mm -hmm. just like fundamental human interactions and like, you know, like everyone has things that they can say they complain about at work or that you can say are inefficient or whatever. But because everyone's experiencing them and that's the way it's happened for decades and however long, um, it doesn't seem it's just like that status quo. Whereas when you start dealing with remote work, some of the challenges are new and different. So it feels like, oh, like what a new hassle. We have to deal with how to translate company culture online or we need to figure out how to have a good workflow or, or we have to have a system for communication that is written instead of in person. And that might seem like this huge hurdle. But once you start solving those problems and thinking of solutions, it's really not any worse. And I think one thing that I've, that I think can be really beneficial is it makes you look at what you're doing differently and how the teams work together and like really kind of consciously rethink and approach what's going on. Whereas like you may have just like gotten into habits because they're easy to get into. Right. Before you have to deal with remote workers. For sure. I mean, my team would tell you now that I'm, I'm always focused on communication, um, but I'm actually more of a technical guy, but Remotely, it's like the thing that I'm always looking at is communication and how do we how do we do that better? And it's yeah, it's just one of those things where I think if I wasn't remote, we could probably skate by on a lot more um, 
easy sort of turnaround and talk to your colleague situations and being remote forces things like communication to be a real problem you have to make sure to solve. Yeah. And I think like uh, for me working in production project management in a very like untrained way because I've worked with creative teams. So it's kind of just doing what that mm-hmm. project needs. Um, it It means that I'm writing down and like synthesizing information in writing much more than in those conversations. And I think like it seems a little annoying at first, but the result is that I have to be organized. I have to be able to put it into words. I have because I can't sit in the room and have a conversation with a client and the creatives all together. Even if we have a call, exactly, I still need to get online afterwards and write down for both parties hey, this is what was discussed. This is what we've agreed on. This is what we're going to move forward with. And then when we have it in writing, sometimes like the creative director or client turns on, I was like, oh no, I thought we were going to do a completely different thing or the scope was going to be totally different. And if we just said it, we all would have walked away thinking like, oh, this is what I'm getting and been had three different ideas. Right. It forces some issues, especially in communication that, um, you can get away with in an office without having to address, but but certainly remotely, um, you're going to have to address stuff like that. You just have to. I mean, I yeah, I, I would agree with you. I echo your experience in my own sending an email every so often just saying, here's what I think, here's what I heard. Um, and then you find out all kinds of things when people start to read that message. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very interesting to see uh, basically everything that's happening on a day-to-day basis unfold in writing and in black and white in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I can, you know, it has its, it, its ups and downs, but it, it does change how things happen. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so when you're working now, I know you use Slack. What are, what are kind of like the day-to-day apps and like, how do you do your work? Um, well, so, uh, you know, some of it has been very time zone specific, too. So we're in Vietnam. Uh, my team, primarily the big group of them that I talk to on a day to day basis and work with uh, are in the central time zone. So um, a lot of what I do. So you're 13 hours off. Right. That's correct. <laughs> um, and I do get to work uh, a little bit with folks in London and Sydney. So it's not always 13 hours off, um, but 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 the majority are. Yeah. And so. um most of my day. So the first thing is that all of that work day that happened um, while you were asleep, you have to catch up on. And so, uh, yeah, we use Slack, email, um, and I probably spend a good hour, hour and a half every day sort of what, reading that flow, reading that timeline of all the things that happened while I was asleep. Um, How many people are you catching up on? Uh, well, so it's usually like um, a team chat room, uh, team email list. So um, it could be anywhere from like maybe four to 10 people having a conversation at any given time. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but, you know, it's eight to 10 hours worth of it. So uh, sometimes a lot can happen, you know, and and Rackspace is one of those places that can move fast when it needs to, which is really cool. Um, But it also means that sometimes you wake up and uh, there's a whole paradigm shift maybe or you know, you're not you're not using one cloud storage thing to lo- send a document to somebody. You're using a different one, or you know, whole changes happen overnight. Sometimes, literally. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, a lot of my day at the beginning is spent doing that, and then um, after that, uh, a lot of it I probably spend about half the time um, contributing directly to things that we uh, might have a, a customer need for. 
um, and about half the time doing sort of engineering things, and I use that in air quotes, but things that um, things that uh, are either making tools or processes or getting people organized um, that then help the rest of the larger team I work with do that same thing, helping customers. So um, it's kind of the, the meta one level removed of getting organized, writing tools to help that larger team support customers uh, on Amazon Web Services right now is the, is the uh, group I'm focused on is doing that. And so, um, and then, so it's 50% working directly with customers on AWS um, and then 50% kind of doing support, support behaviors that help the other folks on, on my larger team do the same thing. And so this Amazon Web Service, like when you're doing that, that's some kind, like you're... I don't even know how to ask this question. What's on your computer screen? Like, are you in some kind of like portal or something that Amazon has that you're in, or you have a different software? Like, so, I don't even know how um, we're accessing. Yeah, so mostly it's writing code to do things um, in uh, on their cloud, right? So they have a bunch of utility things, uh, like utility model resources. Um, so imagine it like uh, as if you had two electricity providers and. Um, Amazon's one and Rackspace is one and like I'm writing code that's making the Amazon one um, do things for someone's house, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you're you're opening, where, where do you write your code? What are you doing? Um, it depends. It's Python, progr- a lot of programming languages. Um, okay. So you are like, if I looked at your screen, I'd see that like black. You would. Thing. You would see the sort of console looking uh, stuff. Yeah. Also a lot of templates to sort of do things repeatably. So let's say um, a customer has a server and they're going to be on a high profile, like they're going to be on Shark Tank or Oprah or something. And like I might be writing a template to make sure that someone can stamp out 50,000 of some resource so that um, they can grow to that size to meet the demand. And then maybe maybe in three days they'll delete all of those um, so they're not paying for them all the time, you know. For instance, that would be like a, sort of one of the cost optimization ones. Okay. Another one might be um, like if someone ha- a company has a bunch of developers and um, they have their own product and uh, they need to add a developer and the developer needs to be able to build and change and improve their product without touching anyone else's copy. Um, so it might help them build an environment to do that um, in an automated way. Um, things like that. Okay. At a high level. <laughs> and and um, so you use Slack with your team. Yes. And you have, is that organized where you have channels for like the different projects or clients or how um, do you guys work with Slack? Because I know you really use Slack. I do a lot. Uh, I mean, the thing about Rackspace is it's a big enough place and it's a place that uh, lets people kind of figure out the things that work best for them. So there is Slack. Um, there's also Microsoft uh, Link or Skype for Business. There's people using IRC. There's people using all, all of the tools <laughs> um, because it's a big enough place where that can happen. Uh, but for me, uh, there's a team channel in Slack, and then there's also some project-based ones. Um, and then every so often, uh, separate from Work Slack, if we want to do some real-time work with a customer, maybe we'll... Um, in a separate Slack where customers can join and we might, you know, spend a day, a hack day or something like that with Mm -hmm. them where we work on a problem for a few hours straight to knock it out, for instance. So 
All of the above. All of the above. <laughs> yeah, I only um, I learned about Slack on Remote Year because we started using the free version for our community conversations. Mm-hmm. We now use it at work, which is just me and the creative director I work with, but we have a channel for each of our clients. Um, and really the only way I know how to use Slack is I ping people. I try not to use at channel too often. <laughs> right. And I figured out how to put the Google Calendar integration in. Mm-hmm. So I know you also have the trivia Slack bot, but... Like, what do you see as the benefits of using Slack or what are some of the really cool tools or ways that it can be used beyond just like this channel messaging? Yeah. um, So there's a a bunch of really cool ways. I mean, I think that Slack's become one of those things where uh, uh, not uh, this this happens very often, but every once in a while, I think um, Slack uses Amazon or or Google or one of those other cloud providers as well to build their product. Mm-hmm. I mean, every so often there's some problem, right? And there's suddenly Slack is down. And um, as a remote worker, not thinking of Slack as like a core tool, if it's not working, suddenly like I'm back to email working with my team, which is really, you know, it's it can be shocking at times how much of a reliance we have on Slack. Um, but one of the other cool things to more directly answer your question is that um, there's also sort of a movement to use chat and chat bots for um, all kinds of other things, right? So um, I think we've been seeing in the news now that uh, people like companies that provide a service have built a chat bot. So you can you know get on and, I don't know, talk to a travel planning company and it's like, how can I help you? And you're like, I want to book a flight to Milan. And it says, okay, I found these three. Like, So that's becoming a thing generally like with right. Slack and other tools. And uh, what's really cool is like that... Like Facebook bots. Exactly. And, becoming really and so that's actually becoming a thing for um, the tech world and automation. So I can talk to a bot and say, um, so-and-so needs eight more servers. Go build them. Um, or so-and-so's infrastructure is going to double. Or they need another environment to test a change to their website um, or things like that, or go add a database and run these commands on it. So, um, And you're some, doing that to a Slack bot. There's, yeah, is. that's called chat ops is like the movement, the, the the tech community has named that, but that's that's one way that Slack and other chat tools have sort of become a whole other animal. Um, another way is when you're doing all those things, imagine you hire a new person and suddenly something you used to do your work alone, right? Type into a window on a command prompt. Like all of a sudden the work you're doing is a social activity and everyone can see it with you. Mm. Um, and you can even collaboratively solve a problem over chat, right? If if the command window is now the chat window, everyone can run commands together, which is kind of can socialize. Wait, what do you mean? You can um, make that happen in Slack? Right. So uh, say instead of me sitting in front of a terminal window typing, typing into that black window with white text, Mm -hmm. um, if I can do that in a Slack channel and there's a chat bot on the other end running those commands, we can all do it together as a team. Okay, so you're in the Slack channel, you're writing in pieces of code and Slackbot is testing it and other people are saying, no, do this, or like, right, let's or do tweaking this line my next. Code. Exactly. Oh, so wow. socializing some things that used to be sort of solitary jobs. Wow. Uh, so yeah, Slack, that that whole chat movement, whether it's Slack or, or whatever the tool is, the idea of taking something you used to do alone and uh, solitary, the, that movement to go and do it as a group is really interesting to me. Yeah, and on like a less technical level, I like we use Google Docs all the time, mm-hmm. like with like internally and with our clients, and it's an interesting way to both look at the same document and edit it together. Right. 
like, you know, in the commercials. And then now we've taken to doing like Zoom conference calls where we screen share and are even if it's a Google Doc that we all can have open on the computer, there's still something really interesting about watching somebody like pull their screen up and be able to like interact together where like it's still updating on my computer, but I can also see exactly what that person's doing. And when they go to another window and what they pull in. um, Mm -hmm. So many more of our jobs are becoming uh, something we don't just do alone, but collaboratively And that remote work may may be happening at the same time, maybe enabling it, but it's definitely really different. Um, Even just the, even something so simple as people doing sort of the, the fiction where they all write fiction together and everyone writes a sentence, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like some things that used to be, uh, you know, something you sit at a typewriter at your desk and do are now suddenly like massively scalable and everyone can do them together. And that's happening in other, not just writing fiction or, or uh, marketing or ad copy, but it's like happening in the tech industry. It's happening. um, You see this with like in the university setting with like these massively online courses where students are helping each other and teaching each other instead of Mm. just the teacher responding. Uh, So like, yeah, that that thing is really an interesting idea. I don't know where that'll go, but but it's (laughs) definitely something that um, has changed the way I work and, and in Slack, especially right now. Well, that, you know, this conversation section made me think about how when we talk about remote work, you know, usually there's this like roadblock of like maybe somebody thinks their company or their job or or whatever it is can't be done remotely. And and certainly that's true for for some things. Um, But what we kind of forget is that most of the time, whatever we're doing, like pretty much everybody has clients or customers or something that you're interacting with that isn't in the company anyway. And like you're already working with that person from a distance or you're maybe working with another office mm-hmm. that your company has. And so you're already finding ways to like communicate with people and and send them something and get their feedback and, and have right. conversations where you're not sitting in the same room. And, you know, when we work with like when I was in Brooklyn, we worked with our clients like, sure, sometimes we'd go to their office or they'd come to ours. And like, first of all, that's immediately half the day for however many team members right. are part of the meeting. Um, but that's still only going to happen every so often for like a major review. But on a day-to-day basis, like you might be sharing files, you might be like sending sketches or, or, you know, wanting to test things Mm -hmm. with your clients or they need to ask you a question and you're going to have to figure out a way to have those conversations anyway. Yeah. And having remote workers really just like applying very similar things internally that you are doing with your clients. For sure. I mean, especially if you look at, um, what's interesting to me about what you're describing is also if you if you go read about like how Slack uses Slack, right? As a company, like uh, th- I've read that they meta. yeah very meta. <laughs> they create a ticket. Uh, you know, you you co- you complain about something not working, and they have some ticket. But they create a chat room for that ticket, right? Mm. And so they have a Slack channel for every ticket that they've got open, oh and their God. people can all hop in and work on a ticket together. Wow about slack so like yeah there's it there's the magic of writing something down has is is great it makes it makes a lot of our work easier we have to do it anyway but then it's also interesting to think about about um scaling that up and doing it for every problem you have Mm -hmm. yeah that's really crazy and you mentioned wanting to talk a little bit about offline with me earlier that like remote work and how different professions can kind of interact. Mm-hmm. What what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah. Um, well, I think that I think that it's interesting to take the lens of um, for a particular profession, uh, and, I, and I use my own, um, but to look at uh, how remote work. Uh, if there's anything remote work can teach your profession, or or your profession might be able to teach remote work, and like you talk about writing things down, like some professions that's not very common, um, and maybe remote work will force them to do that, and it will be of a benefit. Um, yeah, I, I mean, in in my work with creatives, like that's a very visual thing. Like a client mm-hmm. comes in, they talk about something they want. The designers are thinking in images. They might be pulling references. And, and it may never get written out as like a specific thing until the day that we make the deck to present to the client. Right. And then you've got a creative writing in words, which they don't always <laughs> like specialize in. And that's the first time we've written down the thing that we're doing for the client. And, and when the producer has to come in and budget it is the first time you write down what that's actually going to entail. Mm-hmm. And doing it, you know, weeks earlier potentially in the process is a, can can impact how that all moves forward. Right. And so I just think that that's a really interesting conversation to have maybe with professions that haven't thought about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, remote work has a bunch of these side benefits that are interesting uh, on their own right. Like, uh, for instance, um, higher worker satisfaction. You've got better retention in a lot of industries um, when people can work remotely. Uh and then you've got things like the tech industry has a real problem, I think, with diversity, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, remote work, actually, you think remote work is, is about the working remotely part. But if you were to look at it and say, can it solve, help solve the diversity problem? Like maybe actually, because yeah. um, if you are seeing higher satisfaction in um, remote work, you might actually be able to retain a more uh, diverse set of employees or, or... Or find a more diverse set of employees right. and be able to hire people that don't live in the Bay Area or, right. or aren't already right in that community of a, te- of a tech hub. But like you can have individuals working for your team that... Mm-hmm. may not have otherwise found you or, or vice versa. Right. And you, there's a lot of uh, studies that are starting to get come out or, or that have been around that show things like more diverse teams tend to have a higher success rate in the business problems they're working on. So like really yeah. remote work could teach us maybe maybe there's a lot of side things that I think are interesting. Certainly writing stuff down is something remote work can teach a lot of professions. But I think there's probably others and some of them some of them might be more like second or third level effects, but I think that um, they can teach us everything from how to deal with conflict management in the workplace to um, maybe they can identify all kinds of gaps. Um, and I think that maybe there's some things like uh, in, in my field that that it can teach remote work too, right? Automation, things that things like, like that example before about uh, suddenly working... Um, together on a problem where before you worked alone, like uh, I think remote work um, might, we might want to figure out other professions or industries where uh, remote work, um, where we can say working remotely is great, but a lot of people now, for instance, work remotely at a desk in their house, they don't talk to anyone. So like maybe maybe the tech community or, or DevOps could teach could teach some of those people, hey, install Slack, like connect with your company. Mm. Um, and suddenly remote work isn't so scary anymore. So I think there's like a lot where various professions and just the idea of remote work have a lot of opportunities to improve each other mm-hmm. and, and not to, right? Like there's definitely things about remote work that for some folks can be isolating and, and there's ups and downsides to, to all of these. But 
But like maybe there's actually a lot of cross pollination that is still yet to happen, especially as like remote work grows and like more people work remotely. Yeah. I mean, that made me think of two really cool ways that like this is probably going to move in the future and, and, and help change the way we work. One of which I think we've experienced on remote year, um, which is that if you're working remotely and you go to some kind of co-working space or you're in environments where there are other people working, you are sitting next to not your teammates and, and not the people that are doing the same industry that you do. And even though you're spending 95% of your time still just doing your job in your little bubble of your computer, um, you know, you may grab lunch or coffee with somebody who does a very different job and, and have a brief conversation. And, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, the other day I was sitting on my couch with my roommate and we were both working and I was like, oh, like you do marketing, right? Like is SEO something, you know, she's like, yeah, that's exactly what I specialize in. I'm like, mm-hmm. OK, well, I'm doing this research for a client. I have no idea how to understand, like, like why this thing is more popular or like I'm looking at this. She's like, oh, we'll come over here. Look at Chrome. Let's look at the source code. Let's look at what's in the meta, like meta descriptions. Mm-hmm. Like here are the things that is making this work really well. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Well, if I was with the company, like I wouldn't be next to that person. Right. Your company benefits from that for sure. Yeah. And that five minute interaction with somebody is something like I couldn't orchestrate easily otherwise. And that's happened. You know, it's it's these little things that aren't necessarily quantifiable as like, oh, we've made a thousand more dollars from that. But you gather little pieces of insight and, and data um, and, and just like being able to ping people in the group or ask people in the group, like what website should I look at or how, how should I learn about this thing? And. And getting that reference, I think, mm-hmm. is something that remote work encourages because you're on your own, that working in an office, you're learning from your team, but you're not necessarily learning from other industries and professionals. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I gave a, a talk, as I mentioned earlier, in, on, in Oslo this year about remote work and DevOps. And um, that, you know, when I was doing that, originally, I wasn't thinking about the place I was in, right? I'm talking about remote work. They have a lot of really cool things that are happening in Scandinavia in the tech community, um, but their amount of remote work is five percent, I think, on average, of, which is much lower than other parts of the world. And so, like, it's I'm excited to see what some of these cultural differences and communities, as they sort of um, come into remote work, like what what they teach us, like what will I be doing differently as a remote worker when. Uh, this huge swath of, of Northern European society that didn't work remotely really before suddenly starts thinking about remote work. Right. Because those same, like I said, we have these workplace habits in person. Right. Now, those of us who've been doing remote work for years have habits of how we do that. And then somebody else coming newly remote in 2020 maybe is going to see the tools in a different way and, and sure. interact in a different way. Even like hiring somebody on my team, having a new person is amazing because you get to see all of that again. You get to see somebody go, oh, we, we do this, like, for the first time, and you mm. learn so much every time that happens. So, like, I'm very excited to see what it what the future has to bring um, as, as more, as remote work becomes more of a thing and as more, like, cultures get into remote work. Like, it, it should be really interesting to see kind of where we are in 20 years. Yeah, and I think we mentioned a little bit with the diversity. One of the other benefits of remote work is that, like, sure, you can get a full-time hire at a company, but... I think it also makes it so much easier to do contract work and, and like short term things or like a retainer or different kinds of hiring and collaboration mm. so that um, like for me right now, I have a, a 
kind of complicated dynamic of how it got started. But basically, I have a client that I'm working roughly 10 hours a week for. And, you know, we've set up, okay, we'll have a weekly call. We're going to go over these things. We're going to use these tools to communicate. But I definitely would not be qualified to get hired for a full-time position. And they wouldn't be able to support a full-time position for what I'm doing. But we've already had some collaboration and they're able to say, hey, we have this need for at least a few months. Can you do this amount of work for us? And I can be brought on in that capacity without really changing. Like, they don't have to spend three grand on a recruiter to hire me and do all this other stuff. Right. I just come in directly. We do the work and then move forward. And I think it gives both companies the opportunity to hire people in the ways that they need without it having to be this full time investment. And it gives people the opportunity to get experiences and work without like necessarily these huge contracts. Mm-hmm. I think we'll see whole new economies of, of both on the providing side and this the what people need side, like as a result of remote work for sure. I mean, you see just an inkling of that with um, like Amazon has a service, a mechanical Turk. Are you familiar with that? It sounds familiar, but I don't really. It's like micro tasks where people can go and just like do something very simple, like image recognition, and they get paid um, some very small amount for it. But it's like an entire economy that didn't exist before. Right. And remote work is like enabling that in a way that um, couldn't have existed before. So. Some company might have 60,000 images they need to know. They need someone to transcribe the number they see in it or whatever or um, something like that. And then there's also 60,000 people that are willing to do that work. So, yeah, total new economies based on remote work uh, are a potential and already happening. Yeah, I guess, you know, I read an article the other day about how the millennials are like the sharing economy. Like we're not buying houses and cars. We're renting and Airbnb and Uber and Zipcar and like we're doing a very different approach because we have these apps and tools and why would I invest in a car and insurance and gas when I can just get a ride when I need it and I I think you know I I didn't think about how that would translate into work and how it's already translating into work but I think it's like the sharing economy of our labor right which is that like you need this amount of work from this person like let's match let's do it we part and we don't have to have this whole like at will contract and salary and, and, and everything else. For sure. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see what that looks like in some industries it hasn't touched yet. Yeah. In definitely. the next few years. Well, that's so exciting. We are um, melting in this room a little bit. The air it's conditioner true. has worn off and it is Vietnam in January is still very it's not warm. winter. <laughs> it is not winter. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> So I'm back with Martin in 2021, four years after we recorded our first interview back in Ho Chi Minh City at the end of our remote year together. And I'm really excited. I was just listening to our first interview and we talked about obviously your education and career and experience, which was super interesting. But also we talked a lot about online learning and remote work because you've worked in those spaces. Um, In 2017, you'd been working in those spaces for several years, which means now we have four years on top of that and the pandemic and everyone going to, or not everyone, but a lot of people going to online learning and remote work. So I'm really excited to talk through what you've been up to the past four years and especially this crazy past year. But yeah, so just maybe a quick update of where you're at geographically, what you're doing at the current moment in your career. 
Yeah, that sounds great. I'm excited to be back talking to you. It feels like um, a lifetime ago, not just because I've changed jobs, um, which I'll explain further, but also just uh, not being on remote year and not even having traveled in in a whole year. So it's like a totally different, it feels like such like a dream that that, that all even happened the way my day-to-day is right now. Um, but yeah, I uh, I finished remote year. I've been pretty much based back in Florida, in Gainesville, which is like a medium-sized college town. Um, and I had been traveling, continuing to travel from time to time, um, even meeting up with other remotes, doing like a couple of other things like that. Um, I also had changed positions at Rackspace and, um, you know, I had finished remote year and I thought, well, you don't really get what you don't ask for. So um, I said, hey, I want to um, work on these other things that I had sort of been working on informally. So I changed teams within the company um, and I did that for a little while. I uh, didn't have a title change or anything like that, but just more formalized what I had already been doing. Um, and then I kind of made uh, made a decision, you know, as often happens with us, I was traveling somewhere, I was in South Africa, taking some time off, and I thought, is this what I want to keep doing? Um, and I applied to a couple of other jobs. Uh, and later, uh, the next year, which has been now a year, I've been at a new company um, called HashiCorp, uh, and I've been there just over a year. I have a senior site reliability engineer title there, which is um, pretty fluid, but some very similar stuff to what I had been doing at Rackspace. Um, and yeah, I'm just kind of hanging out in Florida and uh, making it work during the pandemic. <laughs> well, I'm very glad it's been working. Um, so yeah, we talked in the last interview about your you know, what, what Rackspace did and what you kind of specifically did and sort of how that happened. And uh, so I would just be curious a little bit more about, cause I guess you stayed there for another two or three years, maybe after remote year. So yeah. How, how is that experience and, and work and what, you, what, what were you doing kind of for those years? Sure. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but for, for me at least, and I imagine other people that were working for larger companies, there's sort of an element of like, don't rock the boat. You have a pretty good setup. You're traveling and working. That's such a rare find. I mean, even just working from your house was at that point was unusual, not these days. Um, but like I kind of had gotten back and was like, all right, I'm willing to take a little bit more of a risk I've done this year. Um, and I just said like, you know, I'm, I'm working on a couple of projects related to their like public cloud business. And I thought I want to actually work on it. Um, and it, it became like a lot less of a of a job where I was doing like smaller things, helping customers and more working um, like on larger, bigger projects, like directly uh, with internal teams to like affect lots of customers. So in some ways, uh, it let me take like a little bit more of a risk professionally, but also like have a bigger impact. And so that was a really good move. And um, it was actually really sad uh, to leave there as well, I had a great team. Um, you know, they always say like, you don't leave a company, you leave a manager. It's kind of funny. Like it for me, it was the reverse. It was like everything about the team I work with is awesome. But um, like, what's the next step for me professionally? Like, what does that look like? And I had kind of climbed the ladder at Rackspace. And so it's like, 
I had never been in a position before of trying to figure out like, okay, I've, I've gotten to this level where I can't like really go a lot further. Do I take like another a step back down the ladder to move? That was a really big like uh, decision point for me trying to figure out what to do. Um, and I, I really wanted to find a company that matched sort of the things I was looking for that I think were changing our X space, which is like uh, focus on the culture, like um, a real, like really good uh, in terms of growth, things that were um, like a company that was growing, but doing similar types of work as what I was doing at Rackspace. And I found uh, HashiCorp, which was which was great. And um, they were just embarking on some new projects, which you can now like see that they've launched over the last six or 12 months. Um, and really let me use a skill set um, at a much smaller company too, which is interesting. I think when I joined, they were like under a thousand people and Rackspace had been at six or 7,000. And so it's kind of like going from being a, a fish in a big pond to being in a much smaller pond. Um, so that was kind of the adventure I wanted. And I thought I could have the kind of influence, but in an even bigger way at a smaller company. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of why I made the professional move. It just the company was changing where I was at, and I was like, "What? What is all of these other things are around? Right? Your your work is always changing, but it was like, what would be the next big challenge for me? And I was like, "All right, I think the next big challenge is going to have to be somewhere else. I've already gone so far here." That makes a lot of sense. So it was in terms of the job, like the role that you moved into, was that similar work to what you'd been doing or was it, was it going down a bit or up or totally different area? <laughs> like that, that site reliability engineer? Uh, yeah. So it's, it's that, that kind of position is about sort of keeping the lights on, keeping operational things running as far as like cloud infrastructure. And so I had been in a role where I could be more of a software development engineer if I wanted to, doing writing code, or I could switch to being more um, writing code for operations or reliability type stuff. So like scaling up infrastructure, you know, big big in the cloud world is like only paying for what you need, but it means you have to write software to like shrink and grow what you need based on user demand. And so that's like something that I was sort of already doing before in a more blended role. And this is like more, uh, I moved into much more of like a targeted role. Although what's great is that HashiCorp, like the, the boundaries are blurry. I'm a, you know, it's not like someone says you can't go work on the software part of the project. You can definitely do that as much as, as, much as the reliability work. So um, in some ways it's not too different, uh, but what it is is like getting in at the ground level of a big new project as well as like being um, on a new team that's building something for the first time. Whereas this, the projects I had worked on at Rackspace had been going on for a few years. Like they had a lot of history. Um, you actually, I, I think you probably see this a lot in our industry, which is that like people come on, they do, they work for a few years on a new project. And then it's like, all right, it's kind of in a steady state, adding features slowly, like maintenance, making, you know, making money, but not necessarily dramatically changing. And so um, I was kind of ready for that bigger, more dramatic change, but I get to do the same kind of stuff, which is cool. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. I can totally see that. Especially if you like solving problems, eventually you're going to want some crazy new problem to solve. Right. Um, right. What is, what does HashiCorp do? 
for those of us who yeah. don't understand tech. <laughs> um, that's a good, that's a good question. I think they're not like a name that is quite as known as maybe Rackspace, but um, they, they build a lot of different software uh, for helping uh, folks deploy things into the cloud. And so I think you'll find that like folks using Microsoft's Azure cloud or Amazon web services, or um, even uh, Google's cloud platform, a huge majority of people doing it are using um, software written by HashiCorp to do it. Um, so that's like one big thing they're known for. Um, they're also known for some components on like uh, networking and service discovery, which is like a small, uh, or not small, but like a, a very specific subsection of like how people build applications. Um, and they're sort of in the in the market there as like one of the leaders of, of that, this service discovery software. Um, so, you know, you spin up a bunch of, you build something, some application and some part of it is you need web servers and like how do web servers find databases or for example, it's like you could, they, they write some software and uh, that has an open source component that uh, does that. So um, yeah, a couple of different sort of things that are all built around the open source community and then also have like more that they layer onto it. Yeah, I I still, in spite of the number of people I know who work in tech and with the cloud and, you know, like Tritico and other other friends that we have from Remote Ear, I still struggle to understand it. But I know that it's a thing and it's a big thing and that it would be very complicated to explain in detail. Yeah, a lot of what they make is sort of like enabling software to make people use the cloud um, better. And they have like open source and commercial versions of it. So like generally that's, it's all like enablement software to do something better. So um, I think like talking about remote work, you know, you, you can imagine that like Zoom has had a lot of growth during the pandemic. Also like software that enables cloud deployment and cloud software to run better is also um, a big deal right now. So it's kind of funny that I joined uh, the company right before uh, the pandemic. That's actually a great segue because I'd love to talk more about sort of the pandemic influences on things. Because as I listened to our first interview, I mean, we spoke in 2017 and obviously some of the, the work experience we were talking about is work that you'd had, you know, years before that in 2012, 2015, whatever. It was really interesting to me, hearing what you were, you know, when you worked at like the University of Florida, for example, and you talked about setting things up for a school with 40,000 students and you have 20,000 people using something at the same time. And I think that that's something that I remember reading in the news in March 2020 when the pandemic forced people to go online for school and work and, and how much people, like there was just like, on a lack of preparedness on so many levels, but even just the basic levels of what we can support, like our home internet and other things. And, and so I've the highest level awareness of that, but I would be as somebody who knows a lot more about this from the academic side, the company side, the cloud side, like, you know, what, what were these things sort of built for? And so then what, what happened when all of a sudden everyone's like, what happens? Like we don't have enough physical servers we don't have enough like i'm sure it's a lot of things but <laughs> what happened <laughs> yeah it's a good question i mean 
I do think like very practically that sort of what happened, uh, you did see, you actually saw cloud providers, like big companies, right? Like um, ones that they are household names suddenly um, run out of in infrastructure and resources in some cases, which is super interesting. Um, I think there's like, uh, there's a, like a couple of sort of, uh, I would say the leaders in that space. So there's like the, the Amazon, Microsoft, Google, et cetera. And you actually saw like some of them run out of servers in particular places, which is really interesting. Um, I actually think what, like one thing it really drives that um, maybe not everybody had sort of thought about is um, like, there's always been a little bit of a fear of like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't only use Amazon Web Services. Don't only use Azure. But now it's like, you're actually seeing companies say like, oh, we can't only use because they're out, right? Like it's almost becoming a little more competitive. It's like, oh, I can't get a server in Azure in Microsoft's data center in Seattle today. So like, what do I do? I go to Amazon instead. Or um, So I think like very practically you saw people suddenly scrambling to figure out like where to get resources and things. Um, honestly, like my biggest concerns when all of this kicked off were uh, much more like cultural than they were about the technology side, just because of the pandemic. Um, you know, a lot of people would say to me, I don't know if they would say this to you, but my guess is yes, um, is they would say like, oh, you already know how to do this, right? Like you already, you already know what remote work is like, like you're fine, like this isn't, this is old hat for you. And I'd be like, well, you know, I've never, I've never been like glued to the 24 seven news cycle while working remotely all day. Like I, I was actually in Colombia at the time that they started to close borders and actually some remote year people were supposed to get together in Mexico the next month. Right. And it was like, I was like, okay, I couldn't leave if I wanted to right now by car. Like, should I wait for them to close the airport or so like I was I was very much watching all this like this is not normal remote work um and and my fear with that was that people I, I would I would remind people like I'm this is not normal I'm not used to this I'm not actually used to a global pandemic and trying to be productive but at the same time I was also really afraid that people were going to um associate this with what this is what remote work is like right like remote work is you can't leave the house and you you can't, yeah. you know, I was so afraid. I was like, people are going to say remote work is the worst thing in the world because their only experience of it is like during this global pandemic. And, and like, gosh, this could be bad for like my goals of wanting to continue to work remotely. I, I feel the same way. And I, I really wanted to work on a remote work episode, just completely focused very specifically on talking about remote work because now so many people have experienced it, but that experience has been in the context of a pandemic. And I absolutely agree. Like, yes, I, I now have seven years of working remotely, but this past year of working remotely has been a very different experience of working remotely than the six before it for so many reasons. And because yes, like you have the general stress and threat of like the pandemic your fears of your health, everything going on with like politics and news, you have the fact that you're not just working remotely and dealing with the remote work of your particular team or job, you're socializing remotely. Your family life is like anything that is not in your immediate household for those of us who are isolating um, has now become remote and digital, which like anything has positives and negatives. Like I have 
relationships with friends that we already didn't live in the same place and we already weren't hanging out in person all the time. So the pandemic didn't change how often I saw them, but it did actually make us take the time to set like recurring Zoom calls. And I'm now much closer with them in a, a, an ongoing basis than I was before the pandemic when we just never talked because they were busy and they didn't care to like have a Zoom call with me because I was in another country, right? So it has had good aspects. And I think it's been great to make a lot of companies and people realize that they can work online and that these tools can work and that a lot of jobs can function remotely. But like you said, there's a lot of downside of people thinking this is what it is. And it's like, you're usually not this isolated. You still have other dynamic and interactions with human beings in the real world, even if you work remotely. You don't have to rely on it for everything. And you don't have the same level of like day-to-day stress that this experience is adding. And so it is both familiar and accurate and incredibly new and inaccurate. And so I think, and how that evolves from here forward, like, I don't think we're just going to switch back into 2019 life. Like that ship has sailed, like things will be different, whatever, whatever happens in the next year. Um, but like, you know, we'll, every time you kind of like ping pong between two ends of extreme, like as we find our way into the middle, I think it will be okay, now we have familiarity with remote work or online learning and we can do a bit of that. But then you're going to realize it's nice that I can sit in a cafe when I do it again and I can hang out with people after I close my computer and I don't have to be on my computer to talk to anyone else. (laughs) Mm -hmm. For sure. I mean, I think like one great example of this is I remember when I was still working at Rackspace and they had a lot of people in the office and they would say, you're always so calm. You're never like, you never have frustrated moments in in meetings. And I was like, well, I'm still, I'm just like any other human with stressors and stuff, but like, I'm not on video chat when I do it. And I think that like, so I moved to this new company and they're fully remote. And I don't think anyone would say that about me now. Like everyone's online all the time. And if you're stressed or like you have a moment where you're, you know, you can see, someone can see you're visibly frustrated. Like that's probably happening on Zoom now so much more. Um, so it's really, it really is a different world. For sure. I used to, yeah, you know, I think working remotely let you compartmentalize. I mean, my clients would say wherever I physically was on a Zoom call, like, okay, you can see my background and you might say, oh, what country are you in, Catherine? And I'm like, oh, but I could compartmentalize other aspects of my life and, and just be working when I was at work. And then the pandemic hit. And I mean, yeah, I was in Asia when it started and had to make my way back. And and I remember the first couple weeks of March, I had come back to the States because I was like, this is going to be bad. But the US was like full denial and not doing anything and not changing anything. And I and and that that like dissonance was really painful for me and triggering a lot of anxiety and stress because I was just like, oh my gosh, like no one is doing anything and this is going to be really bad. And I was talking to a client in New York who I had a long relationship with. So we were friendly and like had a human you know, dynamic. And I just had a a complete actual anxiety panic attack and was like on the floor rocking and crying because I was just like, this is going to be so bad. And he's like, ah, New York's fine, whatever. And then a week later, New York is overwhelmed and like completely shut down. And these experiences are just 
they're surreal and they're just, and I'm like, yeah, like this is not normal remote work. Like I'm not normally completely losing it on a call, but then it happens because we're human and we have to kind of allow for that. And I, in a way, then maybe that's good because I think sometimes we can put some pressure on, on what remote work is or what other things are, because we think like, yeah, you're just like a, you know, we're kind of having to recognize you can't just be a robot. You can't work remotely on a screen 10 hours a day and not like your brain cannot handle it. Your emotions cannot handle it. And so there is that benefit of maybe forcing us to understand, you know, what do humans need and remote work can be good, but you still do need human interaction. And like you still, we still need to recognize like emotional things happen and people have feelings and reactions and, and that can't just be totally compartmentalized. Like we need to be able to get on a zoom call and be like, I'm having a really bad day. Yeah, for sure. I'm actually worried that like one, one thing that could happen when this is all over is people don't associate, uh, the, like they see the pandemic sort of ending or like lessening. And then they think, oh my gosh, I can never be remote again because of this. Like, I hope it doesn't hurt remote work that, um, when people have the opportunity to go back in the office, like maybe we'll end up in this place where it's like, people work half their week at home and half in the office or something. But like, my fear is that it will actually just be, have been so traumatic for everyone. That, that remote work is like not even a thing that people want to explore anymore. I hope that doesn't happen, but that's my fear. I think it will be very different in different ways. I think some companies and people are going to be like, we've got to get back in the office ASAP. This has to happen you know, we've got to do it. And then maybe realize, oh, we can actually have a little bit more of a flexible thing and like incorporate some of the the good parts of remote work with the good parts of the office and like, you know, ping pong and figure out that path. And I've definitely heard from some people who, yeah, they miss being in the office and other people are like, oh, I really got into that work from home schedule. Or like, it makes me want to do more of this. Or I wish I could now try this and do what you did and like travel and, and kind of explore like, yeah, now to me, yeah, I'm sure you feel similarly. It's like, now we've had some of the experience, we've practiced the tools and we've taken things online that weren't. So what can we do next? And how can we take that to the next phase and chapter and, and adapt and evolve? Yeah. I'm especially curious even how it shakes out in very basic ways, like like the grocery delivery services or the the stuff where it's like, I might actually order groceries now from now on, right? Like that was actually really great in some ways. Um, but then you also have like, I live in a college town, right? So you have, it went from like certain classes were never remote to people begging for them to be remote and the university administration begging for people to come back to campus, whereas they were the ones pushing remote before. So it's like, in some ways, I see the like camps have shifted completely. Like even even working for HashiCorp, I saw at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, don't go to customer visits, don't do this, don't do that, right? Like don't don't expose yourself. And now there are companies that are like, get back here. And it's like it's these total reversals are so weird. I'm curious to see uh where some of them end up. Yeah, I it will be fascinating to see how remote work and just company and work and school evolve in the next um next 2 years really because I obviously I think you know we are making good progress and the vaccines are getting rolled out but it's going to take a few more months to get hopefully it's a few months to get to herd immunity and then that's just in the US you don't even have global herd immunity it's like we have time we we it will take more time for the pandemic to kind of like 
hopefully lessen out, deal with the mutations, like get to the point that we can adopt more of like a day-to-day life in person in like a safe and open way. So that's going to take us some amount of months. So I, I really feel like realistically speaking, it's going to be 2022 and beyond that we have a in-person world dynamic that is safely, uh, yeah, like not so constrained by pandemic protocols. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting how, how that shakes out from like, you know, top down and bottom up forces. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I want to travel again when this is all over. I'm sure you do too. And like, what is it going to be like to go to a city whose like character was all of this in-person work that's gone remote, right? Like if you if you regularly went to San Francisco for work, like you're probably in for a totally different San Francisco now that people are like de- delocating out of San Francisco, right? Or or some of these cities where where they've sort of drawn a bunch of people to that place for that thing. Like what happens? Will it be the same? I don't know. Yeah, there's that whole other level of not just the what we do at work itself, but the implications beyond that of, yeah, people who moved out of cities and bought homes in other places, like they're probably going to stay in those homes for a while. They're, you know, that population isn't going to move right back into New York, SF, LA, whatever. Like, I mean, Texas, the housing market here. I mean, I've seen things where people, it's like $300,000 over asking price. Like houses are selling here. Like my parents are like, we're going to kick you out of the house. We need to sell it. We'd make so much money. And I'm like, no. Um, That's so wild. Yeah. It's a different, it's a different city or a different, yeah. It's like a wholly, totally different place. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's very hard to wrangle the ramifications um, of, of what all this influences, not just the directly obvious work in school, but so many other structures in our lives. Yeah, I actually joined this company also excited about the ability to like, like it's much more fully remote, right? And so one thing I was excited to do was they have budget for like visiting the office more than I had been doing is one concern about Rackspace that I had as I was leaving was less and less opportunities to see my colleagues in person. Um, Obviously I haven't seen my colleagues in my new role in, in a year, Um, but when this is over in theory, I can do that. So like. Yeah, it's it's like it's like everyone at the same time has changed jobs in the entire world. It was like trying to figure out what it's like. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate getting to catch up with you and hear a little bit more about, you know, what you've done over the past four years and um, the pandemic and remote work. It's just great. I mean, I'm curious. Off, I know it's a little off the top of your head. Um, you know, we talked a bit about before, like, you know, using Slack and some of these tools for company communications and company culture, obviously the work part, but also the social or human aspect and um, whether it is for work or, or sort of the culture side, what do you think have been like, are there positive things or what do you think has been really useful or helpful? Like, what are, you, what are your highlights, I guess, of the past year of like being in the situation? Like, I know it's been a lot of tough things, but have there been kind of interesting positives that have come out of of this? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think there are some some are just really interesting, especially like in the tech industry. Like, for example, Zoom, right? Zoom is because everybody knows what Zoom is. People use Zoom as a verb and like, 
they've had a lot of focus on uh, security and like concerns about security and people, you know, dropping in on meetings that that they didn't want dropped in on, right? Or and and like some things where we thought, I, I think I saw it and thought, oh, that's going to blow up because of the pandemic is like actually maybe not doing so great. And like, if you look at the stock market and some of the like collaboration companies, but but I think also like, um, I think we'll see and have seen like some new, more innovative ways that, that uh, or companies or methods or like things people do to stay connected. And like, I don't know, maybe I would be wrong here, but like, even simple things like Among Us, right? Like video games. Like, I don't know that it's hard to imagine that would have been as popular if we weren't in a pandemic. Like, would that have taken off? I don't know. Like, um, and then, so that's like way, way down on one end and on another end is like uh, the impact of like business travel could totally change. And there could be, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm a frequent flyer in a couple of airlines after the last few years of our lives. And like, will that even be a thing anymore? Like, I think the impact of the environment could be good about like that could be great actually so i think like at all kinds of levels it's like forcing innovation that's kind of interesting um and i hope that it'll make us like able to connect especially in these remote jobs like i think already it's already normalized right like someone's kid walking in or uh like i have cats here that are like someone like they're one of them's constantly coming in here and being like i need attention or whatever and it's like some things are a lot more normalized, which I kind of love. Even remote backgrounds, like the the virtual background thing, I love that there's a conversation about like people's personal privacy of like location. It's like a totally new thing, but it's like super cool that like that's something that we're going to care about now. I totally agree with everything you said. Like I I got. Uh, I downloaded Steam and I got the Jackbox game so I could host game nights. And that's been super fun way to kind of keep myself and friends and family entertained on a weekend. You're like, I don't really want to be on Zoom more, but it's super fun to like play a game and laugh and, and feel engaged in this way. And it doesn't feel the same as being on a conference call ultimately. So yeah. And I'm not sure that any of us would have been super motivated to do that. It's not hard, but I don't know that we would have done it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think seeing kind of the human side and breaking down some of those walls, especially, I mean, I guess, I don't know if there is a place that isn't, but I think in, in the U S we're definitely really, um, we like to create our appearances, right? Like whether that's on Instagram or it's like you go into the office and you have your outfit and you're at work and you have your work persona. And I, I mean, it's good to have boundaries. I'm not knocking anybody for trying to create their own identity and boundaries. And, but I think kind of hopefully now having this insight to like people's homes and lives and families and that like really human dynamic to the complexities. It's like every person is a person and no matter who you might be on paper or in your role at work, like you're just a whole person. And I think it would be sad if we fail to recognize that instead of letting the pandemic kind of show, you know, I remember years ago, there was that interview of some, I don't know, like econ guy and his kids came in the background. He's like two young kids and the mom comes in, like scoops him out and he's like on TV and it's like so funny because you're like, oh, the kids like, you know, um, and now that's happened to every single person. Like every single person has been on a call where someone got zoom bombed by a family member or pet in a hilarious way. Right. We're going to have like <laughs> 
Halloween costumes of the of the lawyer yes. that's a cat, right? Like that's I'm that's where we dad. are now. Oh, that's one of the best things that's ever happened. Um, yeah, I, I hope that I hope that my wish would be that we take the positives of remote work, of recognizing humanity, of innovation, and 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 take that with us out of it, and don't don't throw the baby out with the bathwater of saying everything about the pandemic was horrible. Obviously, the pandemic was horrible, but you know, there's always like experiences and learning that can come out of it that are positive. Yeah. I mean, personally for me, just like seeing more of the U S I don't know if that's been the same for you, but like, yeah, try to find ways to, to at least get something out of it and not feel like a year we just lost. Right. For sure. I mean, I didn't become the second coming of Shakespeare, but I did get a lot of quality family time and see a little bit more of the U.S. And yeah, there were there were some some good things that came from it for sure. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me again. Yeah, lovely to catch up with you. It's been good. You can find show notes from my conversations with Martin on our website, modernworkpodcast.com under Martin Smith's episode. You can also check out other episodes with people I've interviewed around the world in a range of professions. And we'd appreciate it if you follow along with us on social media at Modern Work Podcast. Leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform and share this episode if you found it interesting. We are supported by listeners and friends on Patreon, and we appreciate you listening. Thanks so much and have a great day.